Good morning, church. It is great to be back here once again and to be amongst all of you. Um, I hope that all of you had a chance to, and I'm sure most of you probably did, but I hope all of you had a chance maybe to read the bulletin. And if you did, you know how grateful I am this morning to God for many things, amongst which are all of you and all of you at home watching as well. You also know how grateful that I am to the elders for supplying us with this year's PTP 365. It's a financial commitment in order for us to all have free access to that and there are some wonderful, wonderful lessons on there. Karen and I have had a chance to listen to a few. And in fact, there's a lesson on there one of the, the best that I have listened to so far, one of the most encouraging, one of the most, I believe, much needed by Brother Steve Higginbotham of the Carnes Church of Christ in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is a sermon that is posted there, and it is entitled, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. In fact, <laughs> It made such an impact, such an impression on me that I'm gonna preach that lesson this morning, only not the exact one he preached, but gonna use some of his illustrations and, and I've tweaked it and put in some stuff of my own, but I believe that message is vital to so many in the church today. He began with a question similar to this, and I want you to think about this. If Jesus were to come back in the very next instant, in other words, if the very next sound you heard was not my voice, but if the very next sound that you heard was Jesus himself descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, as it tells us he will in 2 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, if that were the very next sound you heard, how would you feel? Would you be ready? Would you truly be ready? Are you sure? Brother Higginbotham said there are typically three answers to that question. There are those that are absolutely confident that they are ready. There are those that are just as absolutely confident that they are nowhere near ready. And somewhere in between those two extremes, there's this great number of people, this great number of people who say, maybe what you said in your mind when you heard that question, who say, I sure hope so. Well, I think so. There is nothing worse for a Christian than living with that doubt. With that either very small sliver or very big slice of uncertainty. You know, we often think in terms of, well, if, if, if that were the very next sound that I heard, if, if, that, if that were in the very next instant what were to happen, have I learned enough? Have I, have I, have I done enough? We think in terms of, well, well, have I given enough? Have I, have I said and done all the right things? And I think those are things that a lot of Christians wrestle with, especially when it's just them in the darkness at night. And brethren, I'm here to tell you this morning the same as Brother Higginbotham said. It should not be that way. God never intended for it to be like that. Nor does it start out that way. For example, stop and think about it. Remember back to when you were converted. Remember back to when you were baptized into Christ. You'd had a study with somebody, and you were baptized, you repented, you turned to God, you were baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because that's exactly what God's word says has got to happen. Now, when you came up out of that baptistry, you were sure you were forgiven, right? You're confident in your salvation. Is that right? Yes or no? This means yes, this means no. Work with me here. I've been gone two weeks, but I'm not gone now. When you came up out of that water because you had studied and you knew that's what God said, you were sure of your salvation, weren't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, based on the promises of God, not based on your own goodness, but based on his grace and forgiveness, and you had accepted it on his terms. But when you have somebody that's converted and they're sure of their salvation, and you go back and ask them a year later, what's often the result? Are you saved? Well, I hope so. What happened? This is the same person that was sure of it when they were back. And, and, and what happened? Because you ask them again in a year and they say, well, I, I, I think so. I'd really like to think so. What happened in that year? As Brother Higginbotham said, sin happened. Sin happened and that, that doubt began to creep in. He said that for years, he thought he could have answered that question about if Jesus came back, are you ready? He said, for years, I, I, I was sure I could answer that question positively. As long as Jesus came back when I was all prayed up. As long as Jesus came back between the time I laid my head down at night and confessed my sins and got up in the morning and before I confessed, any, uh, before I committed any more sins, if, I, if Jesus came back during that time, then I'd be okay. But boy, if he came back any other time when I wasn't prayed up and caught up and fessed up, I was in trouble. He said, you know, I, I knew when I sang those songs like, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, and, and I would add other songs like, you know, um, Jesus Saves and others, and he said, I knew the songs, I sang them in church. And just like us, he said he knew and could quote passages like 2 Timothy 1.12, where the Apostle Paul said, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And, and we know those verses, right? right? I mean, we, we know, we, we got them up here. And yet he said there were times that he still struggled to answer that question. He still struggled at times with knowing for certain whether or not he was truly, really saved if, if that next sound was Jesus. And I'll tell you what from talking with even a member or two in this congregation and other congregations where I preached, he's not alone, he was not alone. Not at all. He went on to tell of a good sister that he met while he was doing a meeting or preaching in Oklahoma. She was 96 years old, 96. She'd been baptized when she was 12. She had been a Christian for 80, four years. She said she'd married a good Christian man. They'd raised a faithful Christian family. She said in her 84 years, she probably hadn't missed more than a handful of services. 84 years, pretty good, right? But she said, you know, I'm still one of those people you were talking about. I'm still one of those people. I don't really, I don't know for 100% sure if I'm ready. He spoke of another woman that he had met in West Virginia. A woman who'd been a Christian for over 60 years and she had grown blind, and she used to do her day, daily Bible reading. And since she had become partly blind, she couldn't read anymore, and she came up to him and she said, oh, I hope the Lord doesn't condemn me because I can't read the Bible anymore. And I'm gonna echo what he went on to say. Brethren, there is something wrong with that type of insecurity in Christ. We're missing something if we're that insecure in our salvation. It had ought not to be that way. Listen, is the Bible true or not? Turn with me in your scriptures to 1 John chapter 5. Your Bible, 1 John chapter 5. I just asked you if the Bible was true. I know it's true, and I know all of you know it's true. Every word. And there's some beautiful words that we got to get a hold of for our blessed assurance here in 1 John 5. Verse 11, listen closely, read it, follow it, underline it, highlight it, do something with it. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, past, present, or future. God has given us. This is something God has done for those in Christ. It's black and white. Well, mine's kind of yellow because it's highlighted too. 
And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. You've got to be in Jesus. But if you're in Jesus, you've been given it. He goes on to say, he who, does, he who has the Son, verse 12, has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, you've got to be in Christ, and we'll get to that later on in the lesson. But if you are in Christ, you have been given eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He said, the reason I'm writing is so you can know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, I've written these things so you can know you've been given it, you can know you got it, and you can continue to know you have it. That's why these things are written. But still sometimes we struggle with that question. Turn to me to Romans 8, and I know why, and listen, I'm not belittling or, or putting down any of us. I, you know, I've struggled with it myself at times. That's why this lesson is so needed. In Romans chapter 8, 7, sorry, Romans chapter 7, Paul begins in verse 14, and I'm not going to read it, you can read it later, but in verses 14 through 23, Paul deals with this very thing. Paul, since becoming a Christian, struggled with sin. He said, the things I want to do, I can't seem to do, and the things I know I had not to, sometimes I do them. And he was trying to serve God, and he was trying to please God, and he was trying to do the right thing, but man, sometimes he just fall, fell, failed. I can say this. He fell, he failed. And he said, I know I ought to do better. I've, I've messed up again. What am I going to do? I want you to watch this closely. Watch his struggle. And then look what he says. Beginning in Romans chapter 7, after he goes through this in verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Have you ever felt like that? Why can't I just be a better Christian? I've been there. Okay? And some of you, why, why did I mess this up? Paul's saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I know what I ought to do, and I'm trying, but some days I just can't get there. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, I, I know. He, he's talked about it up in the verses above that. He said, I know I can't fix it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore based on what he's just said, the struggle that he's got, that sometimes he makes those dumb mistakes, sometimes he doesn't do exactly what he knows he ought to, he's trying. He said, who's going to help me with that? How am I going to get through this chapter 8, verse 1? There is therefore now, right here, right now, today. No. What does the word no mean? There is no giraffe in this room. What does that mean? There isn't any form of giraffe in this room. It's not here. There is therefore now, today, no, none, zilch, zip, nada, none. Condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life, where? In Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Because I'm in Christ, he said, I, I'm, I've been freed from that law that says, if you sin, you shall die. Obviously meaning separation from God. Listen, is Romans 8, chapter 1 true? Is it true? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's true. Raise your hand if you're in Christ. Raise your hand. I want to see him. Raise your hand if you're in Christ. You know what that verse means? That means there's no condemnation for you. Do you understand that? Well, if there's no condemnation for you, and the very next sound you hear is that of Christ coming back and you can't be condemned, isn't that an awesome thing? Isn't that, isn't that incredible? But yet we don't live like that. Despite reading, and hearing and learning and knowing and teaching and even being able to quote and explain some of these scriptures to others about how Jesus saves, many faithful Christians still fail to be able to think they can proclaim with absolute certainty and consistency that they are truly saved and fully ready for the return of our Savior. 
Now, there are reasons for that, and, and bringing them out might help us to understand why we often don't have that full assurance. And, and one of those reasons, I believe, is because of so many people that we may know who seem to believe that they're going to heaven, whom the scriptures say or not, okay? We've all known people in our lives who haven't done what God said in order to be saved, but they're still absolutely certain they're going, right? You all know people like that? And so maybe you go to somebody's funeral and you hear the preacher just talking about this guy and just, just preaching him into heaven, or this woman just preaching him into heaven. Oh, they never set foot in a church building. They, they never were converted. They never opened their Bible. They never did what God said to do. But boy, they, they got to be with the Lord. And, and that, that bothers us and it, it rubs us the wrong way because that's not what the scripture says. And, and we know what the scripture says, but, but maybe we've known people like that and we don't want to be like that. We don't want to say, well, I know I'm going when they did that and they weren't and so we maybe maybe that's one reason but I have a question for you to consider and let's face it for that type of scenario I described that it drives us all a little bananas when we go to those situations right but I have a question it's a long one so try to follow me isn't it just as egregious or even maybe blasphemous, an error, to have obeyed God's commandments, to have obtained his promises and assurances in Christ, that one is going to heaven and refuse to trust those, as it is on the other hand to not have obeyed his commandments, not have obtained those assurances, having gotten only assurances you're not going to heaven and refusing to believe them and still thinking that you are. Did you follow me on that? It makes us a little crazy when people don't follow God's promises and still think they're going. We say, well, that ain't right. But what's any different with that than having obtained God's promises that we are and not being willing to stand on those? What's the difference? I don't know that there is one. In other words, why is it any more of a denial of scripture for one to believe they are going to heaven when they've not done what God says they must than to doubt one is going to heaven when they have done what God says they must? Hmm. But yet that's what a lot of you know, good and godly people do. Sometimes what we seem to want to make a habit of doing, and as I said, I've done it myself, doubting the promises and assurances of Almighty God, despite our profession that we do trust Him. Now, I'm not talking about getting arrogant. There's a huge difference between arrogance and confidence in Christ. Huge difference. Don't mistake the two. But I think one reason for the way that we are often mistakenly led to think, as, as Brother Higginbotham brought out, is, is our thinking goes something like this. See if this resembles anything you've thought before. Okay, I've been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. I am in. Then I sin. <gasps> I'm out. Well, well, wait a minute. I'll get all prayed up and paid up before I go to sleep and whew, back in again. And I get up the next day and I say a bad word or I don't do what I ought to do and uh-oh, I'm out again. You ever done that? I don't want to see you shake your heads on this. <laughs> you ever done that? Well, why do we think like that? And, and I believe this is the key. I believe the reason we mistakenly think like that, and I know some of this may be new to you, but wait till the whole sermon's done. Go back and review it online. Take a listen. Really get into the scriptures I'm about to bring up. I think one of the reasons we think like that is found in a statement which Brother Higginbotham, as well as myself, and I'm sure a lot of other faithful gospel preachers have made in the past, which isn't entirely true. And that statement is this. Sin is sin. All sin is the same. That statement is not true. And I'm going to prove it many times over from the scriptures. Now, 
Don't get me wrong. When I say that that statement is not true, I mean it's not true on every level. On some levels it is, but it's not true on every level, and it hurts our eternal security and, assur and assurance that we have in Christ when we make all sin the same on every level. Now, sin is all the same, that statement is true, in the sense that all sin is missing the mark. So all sin's the same in that, in that area, on that level, that it is missing the mark. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. That statement is true in that all sin is abhorrent to God. All sin is the same on that level. It's all abhorrent to God. It grieves him, Genesis 6, 5 and 6. But that statement is not true in the sense that God views all sin exactly the same because God does not. And when we can get our minds around that, as I'm going to try to get us to do this morning, when we can get our minds around that God does not view all sin all the same on all levels all the time. When we get our minds around that, it will help our eternal assurance. Let me show you some examples of the fact that God does not view all sin exactly the same. Now, I'm not going into a big explanation of these texts. I just want to show you there's a difference in the way God looks at some sins as opposed to others. That's what I want you to see. Exodus chapter 32, let's start there. And as I said, I know that this may be a little bit something that you haven't heard before maybe, but I want you to really look at these texts. Genesis chapter 32. Not a long explanation, just by way of comparison. Exodus 32, Moses comes back down off the mountain. People have sinned. They've made a golden calf. Look what happens. If I get out of Genesis 32 and get up with y'all into Exodus 32, it would probably make more sense, right? Exodus 32. Look at verse 30. Love to hear those Bibles turn, says you're with me. Exodus 32, 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. Did you notice that? He didn't say you've committed sin. He said you've committed a what? Great sin. Just making a difference. There's a, there's a difference here. You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Remember that word atonement. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Do you see that there's sin and then there's a great sin? Do you see there's a little difference here between what God's talking about? Salt that away. Turn with me to the next one, or, or listen about the next one if you would. In the story of King Jeroboam, which Kirk did an outstanding job with a couple of Wednesday nights ago, 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 21 says, Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. Not just a sin, but a great. There's, there's a little difference there. But perhaps there's nowhere in the Old Testament that shows the incredible difference to God between sin which is intentional, that is willful, determined, and planned rejection and rebellion against God from that sin which is unintentional. That is, the kinds of sins that we commit every day while trying to follow the Lord, unintentional. Listen, because of the blood of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, none of us want to sin against him, right? Amen? But at times, we still say and do things on the spur of the moment, unintentional, we sin, right? There's a world of difference between intentional, purposed, willful, planned out, premeditated sin and those sins like we commit every day. And, and God's always differentiated between those. Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 15. God is differentiated between those types of sin in his eyes from the Old Testament forward. Numbers chapter 15. I'm going to read this fairly quickly, but... Work with me here and, and take this in. Listen, Numbers 15, 22. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be if it is unintentionally committed, this is for the whole congregation, 
Without the knowledge of the congregation, the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, sweet aroma to the Lord, with his grain offering and his drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement, there's our word, for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, watch this, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, their sin offering before the Lord, for their unintended sin, it shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them, because they did it unintentionally. Has God done pretty well to stress that this is unintentional he's talking about so far? So the whole congregation. Now, he's going to go to a person. Listen to what he says. Next verse. And if a person, singular, sins unintentionally, impulsively you do something and you mess up, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering, so the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it what? Shall be forgiven him. Unintentional sin can be atoned for by the high priest, and it shall be forgiven. You shall have one law, verse 29, for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. God said there's only one law here for those who sin unintentionally. This is it, and they can be forgiven. However, verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. He shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. You see, here's the difference. That person who sins presumptuously or intentionally, that person who says, I don't care what God wants me to do. I couldn't care less. I'm gonna do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't care what the Bible says. That person is sinning intentionally. You with me? Y'all with me? And it doesn't say that person's sin shall be forgiven. And what does it say? That person shall be cut off. Do you see the difference in the two kinds? You see, there's a difference in the way God views certain sins. Do you see that? We, we've got to get that in our heads. This is like Hebrews 10:26 that a lot of people have struggled with in the past. The New American Standard Version says, for if we go on sinning willfully, that's intentional, that's purposed. I don't care what God wants, I'm gonna do it my way. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, do you and I have an advocate who covers our sins when we're trying to do God's will and we mess up and fess up, do we? Yeah. But for the person who goes on willfully rebelling against God, they don't have. See, there's a difference in the way God views certain sin. For example, let me give you three real quickly in the New Testament. Matthew 12. Please turn there. Matthew 12, 31 and 2. And again, just notice the difference. All sin is not viewed exactly the same by God. Yes, it's all abhorrent to him. Yes, it all has to be paid for. Yes, it's all bad. But still, on some levels, it's seen differently. Matthew 12, 31 and 2. Look with me there. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, we can get into what the unpardonable sin is in another sermon, but again, you see there is a difference. Turn to me to John 19, please. John 19, verse 11. John 19, verse 11, Jesus answering Pilate says this, he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above, therefore the one who delivered me to you has the what? Greater sin. Again, do you see that all sin is not regarded exactly the same by God? Yeah, yeah, you've, you've got an issue here, Pilate. But you know what? You wouldn't have this power unless God had given it to you, but I'll tell you what, there's one with a greater sin than yours. <gasps> there's difference? Yeah, there's differences. Let me give you one more, please. 
First John chapter five. First John, not the gospel according to, but first John, way up near Revelation. First John chapter five. Back where we read first John five, eleven through thirteen, go a few verses further. Notice there is a difference the way God views some sins from others. 1 John 5, 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life. For those who commit sin not leading to death, there is sin leading to death. You see, there's a difference. There's sin not leading to death. There's sin that does lead to death. We can go into that one later too, but not today. I've got too much good stuff I want to give you here this morning. My only point is this, God definitely does not see all sin exactly the same, and it is in that difference that we find our assurance. Say that again. It is in that difference that we find our blessed assurance. And we're gonna spend the rest of the lesson talking about that very thing. Let me prove it from one text in the old and one text in the new. Turn back with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15, this idea that God does not view all sin precisely the same. 1 Kings 15. And yeah, I'm waiting until the page is stopped because I want you all there. This is, this is so important. This is so important if you want that assurance. First Kings chapter 15, verse five. God speaking of David. It says, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now, now, look at that verse really close. Did David ever sin other than the matter with Uriah? Did he or not? Yes, he did. But, but, but God says he'd not turned aside from anything that I commanded him all the days of his life except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. How does that work? Here's how it works. Yes, David sinned at other times. You know, I even wondered, first time I read this, or lately when I read it, I wondered, wait a minute, why doesn't that say that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not turned aside from anything he commanded him, except in the matter of Bathsheba? Would that make more sense? I mean, Bathsheba's where this whole thing started, right? And I, and I thought about that. But I think that it is in this very verse that we see displayed the very difference in God's view of different sins that I'm talking about. Listen closely. All sin is horrible. All sin is awful, terrible, and a total affront to God. No doubt about it, all sin is. David's sin with Bathsheba was nothing short of all of those and then some. No doubt. However, here's the difference. Get this, oh get this. However, David's sin with Bathsheba was a terrible, impulsive, unplanned, and spur of the moment mistake made in human weakness by a man otherwise known for having a heart after God. But according to this text, David's sin against Uriah was something else entirely. Because God didn't say, well, he turned away from me in the matter of Bathsheba. No, because, you see, that was, a, that was one of those, those weak, unintentional, spur-of-the-moment, really bad, bad, bad mess-ups. But you see, the sin with Uriah was something else. The sin with Uriah was the only time that David turned aside. David willfully, premeditatedly, defiantly, planned, plotted, schemed, and carried out this awful crime knowing that it was against God's order. You see, it was deliberate. He thought about it. He planned it. 
It wasn't some impulsive spur of the moment weakness thing he did. It was a totally different thing. And that, God says, is the only time he turned aside. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between rejecting God's plan and, and premeditatedly, willfully going out and continuing to live against what he said as opposed to trying to follow God and making the mistakes we unintentionally make every day. There's a world of difference in the way God sees them. Let me, let me show you this. They're all still horrible. Don't go home and say, Doug said nothing wrong with sin. I did not say that. But I am telling you there's a difference in the way God looks at them. If there's a New Testament text that proves this very point, go back with me to 1 John. 1 John is great on this. 1 John, chapter 1. Written to Christians. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, that's present ongoing tense in the Greek, meaning continually cleanses us from all sin. Brethren, understand this. Walking in the light does not mean walking sinlessly. I think too many times we mess that up. And that's where we lose our assurance because we think the first time that we mess up, oh no, I'm out. Let me say it again. Walking in the light does not mean walking without sin. If it did, none of us would get there. If it did, this verse wouldn't be written the way it is. How is this verse written? Look at it again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, why would his, sin need, why would his blood need to continually cleanse us from sin who are walking in the light, if walking in the light meant we never sinned. The whole text here says that, yeah, even though you're Christian, even though you're walking according to God's word and you're trying to follow God, even though that's going on, there's going to be times you're going to mess up. You're going to unintentionally fail and let God down. And you know the beauty of it? You know what God does with that sin? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses us from that sin. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that why you're here this morning? It ought to be. He goes on to emphasize again that walking in the light doesn't necessarily mean you're never going to sin. God knows you are. Psalm 103, 8 through 14. But he goes on to drill the point home. Verse 8, and again, this is written to those who are Christians if you read the first four verses of this epistle. Verse 8, if we say... We as Christians, not we as pagans, we who are already in fellowship with God, we who are in fellowship with one another, we who are under the blood, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the sin is not in us. I can say this, and the truth is not in us. I'm going to start preaching here in a minute, I promise. If we as Christians say that we don't occasionally sin, we're lying through our teeth. God knows that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, even though we're walking in the light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God ongoingly takes care of that for those who are in Christ. What an awesome God. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I love Brother Higginbotham's illustration. Please listen closely. Two little boys. Both three years old. <clears throat> Said that this one little boy saw his daddy outside one day pushing the lawnmower. Hot August day, sweat just dripping down. Shirt was drenched with sweat. And his daddy was out there pushing the lawnmower. So, so this little boy decides that what he's going to do is, is in love for his daddy. He's going to take care of his daddy. So he drags his kitchen chair across the kitchen floor, leaf scratch marks in the hardwood. And he climbs up on the shelf. Way in the back of the cupboard, he sees his daddy's favorite glass. And so he wants his daddy to have a cold drink. So, so he kind of, little guy, you know, three years old, he reaches back in and he goes to grab onto that little glass. And as he pulls it out, two tumblers tumble onto the counter in the floor and smash. But the little tight boy, he's not, he's not concerned with that. He's just got eyes on one thing, and that's his daddy. And so he goes over to the refrigerator, and you know a lot of people keep their water not in these gallon jugs, but in these refillable, you know, pitchers. And this little boy grabs this pitcher, and he's going across the floor, and he's, he's trying, and the water's sloshing all over the floor. 
He pours that into his daddy's favorite glass. And he is so proud of himself. Because in his love, he just try and take care of his dad. And he gets out there and he, he takes it out and his dad sees him coming. Dad switches off the lawnmower. And just before the little boy gets there, he stumbles and throws cold water all over his dad. Boy number two. We'll say he's a little older. We'll say he's five. He's mad at his father. He's angry. So he wants to express that. So he takes the kitchen chair and he just drags it across the floor. And he sees up in the cupboard his daddy's favorite tumbler and he just reaches in there and grabs it and just smacks two or three of those others out onto the counter. Let's them break. He don't care. Good enough. And he goes over to the, the kitchen, uh, the refrigerator, and he gets this jug and he brings it over and, and he pours it and water goes all over the place and he just lays it down outside and it glug, 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 glug all out. And he's got this glass of water, takes it out, gets it out there by his father and just throws it in his face. Both boys did the same things. But there's not a daddy in this room or a mommy who cannot see the difference between the way they would treat the two actions. Is that true? Would you treat one of those different than the other? Would you? Any of you mom, would you treat that different? Sure would. And for those Christians who are children of the living God, they've been born again of the water and the spirit. They've been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And their only desire is to please their dad. Sometimes they're gonna make some pretty big mistakes. They're gonna make some messes. But you know what? God the Father sees that a whole lot different than he sees the same sins being committed by those who are rejecting him, who rebel against him, who will not come to him for his love and grace and are not seeking to serve him. I thought that was an excellent illustration and I believe it fits very, very well. There are those children of God who do to their Ignorance, weakness, or lack of attentiveness throughout the day sometimes unintentionally say or do things that they shouldn't. We do. We're ashamed of it, but we do. But they love God so much that as soon as they realize their error, they repent and, and, and they confess and they, they seek their beloved Father's forgiveness. And, and here's the thing you've got to understand. God is so anxious to forgive you, he can't stand it. You know how I know that? Because he came in the flesh and died on a cross 2,000 years ago to forgive you. God wants to forgive you so much, he went to the cross to provide the avenue so that he could forgive you when you need it, when you mess up as his kid. Isn't God awesome? You know, moms and dads, do you kick your kids out of the house the first mistake they ever make? The first time they're two years old and they, or a year old and they mess their diaper and you don't have one with you, do you throw them out of the car? Probably not. If you did, you'd be in jail as opposed to church, but you get the idea. Well, may I quote Jesus in reference to that? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Hmm. No, we don't throw our kids out of the house the first mistake they make. We don't throw them out of the car the first time that they say something they shouldn't. Instead, we, like the father in the account of the prodigal son, even when our own children sometimes grow up and go so far as to turn their backs on and want nothing to further to do with us, we do like the Father, God, and the prodigal son, and we patiently and lovingly watch the horizon waiting for them to come home so that we can love on them again. Then, there are other children who go out and pitch their tents in the pig pen of sin. They plan to do it. They don't want anything to do with their father's house, and they decide to live and die out there in the pig pen. They don't care what God wants and they're not even remotely interested in being a Christian and trying to walk in his footsteps. And, and that's what this comes down to, is trying to walk in the footsteps of God. I gotta got share one more story with you from bro Brother Higginbotham. And it has to do with the fact of children walking in the footsteps of their father. 
He said wherever it was they were living, they had a little bit of fresh snow, a few inches of fresh snow, and went out one day, and he had two of his kids with him, and the, the older one was a boy. The older boy went out, and was this new snow, and you know, his kids will, they don't, that seldom ever see snow. Kids running around, just this pristine snow, just marking it all up everywhere, running, jumping, kicking, you know. But he said, my daughter, as she came out, he said, and, and he's a tall fellow, and he says, as I'm walking along toward the car, he said, I can look back, and he says, my, my little daughter's trying to follow in my footsteps. And he says, you can see where she missed. He said, her stride's not as long as mine. But you can see where there was a marked difference between one who was trying to follow in my footsteps even though they failed, and one who had no desire to follow in my footsteps. And there's a big difference to God, and we've gone over a lot of the text this morning, between, yeah, all sin is ugly and abhorrent, but there is still a difference in the way God views the sin of those that rebel against him as opposed to those who are trying to follow him but can't quite measure up to his stride. Yes, those sins still need to be forgiven. Yes, they still cost the blood, but there's still a difference in the way God sees them. There's a vast difference between the sin of those who hate and reject him and the sin of those who love, trust, honor, and obey him in his word, becoming children of his, even though they still make mistakes as they grow along the way. This is why there's no hope of forgiveness outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ, there's no hope of forgiveness. Because God sees your sin for what it is. You don't have that mechanism in place where if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to continually cleanse us. You don't have that mechanism. It is only in Christ Jesus, once we repent and we're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, as the scripture says. Once we are baptized and become his children, as the scripture says. And we're walking in the light, not sinlessly, but faithfully walking the best we can in those big footsteps of his that we possess and can be absolutely certain absolutely certain as we do those things of the rock solid God promised assurance of heaven. The day of judgment is often regarded as the most horrible, awful, terrible event in human history and you know what? For those outside of Christ that's exactly what it's going to be. But for the faithful even though still flawed, child of God, the day of judgment is not something to be even remotely feared. As Brother Higginbotham said, for us, it ought to be viewed daily as the greatest, most joyful, most exciting and rewarding day of our entire lives, judgment day. That day when, when Jesus, because our, our sins are gone, when he says, enter. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, that ought to be judgment day for the forgiven child of God, the person who's in Christ, where there's no condemnation and your sins will never be seen because they're covered by the blood of Christ. Judgment day ought to be the greatest day we've ever thought of. Brother Higginbotham illustrated it this way as we prepare to close. We have got, if we want that kind of assurance, we've always got to understand the difference between perfect and faithful. Because that's where we mess up when we combine the two. He said he'd been a husband for I forget how many years, and I, I echo these sentiments. I think it was 40, but it, he'd been a husband for several decades. And he said, I will tell you right now, as I'll tell you, I've not always been the perfect husband. I haven't but I've been faithful. Dads, you, you with me on this? Husbands? Moms? I haven't been the perfect spouse, but I've been faithful. There's a big difference. And God calls us not to be the moment we are baptized that we never sin again. We try not to, but he knows we're going to. God calls us to be faithful. The church in Revelation 2.10 in Smyrna 
Notice Jesus did not say, be flawless until death and I will give you the crown of life. He did not say, be perfect until death and I will give you the crown of life. He did not say, be sinless until death. What did he say? Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. How God regards you and your sin on Judgment Day, if that next sound you hear is his voice, how God views you and your sin, everybody and their sin on Judgment Day is determined by what you do with Jesus today. Now, God has two views of sin, as it were, although both are bad and wrong and all of that. But if you want God on Judgment Day to see your sin through the lens of Jesus perfectly obliterating it blood. In other words, if you want God to try even, because he's going, to, he's going to, to know all these things, if you want him to seek to see your sin through the blood which makes your sin invisible to him, the blood of Christ which you, you want him to look and, and try to see your sin through the blood of Christ that makes it so invisible to him that he can't see it anymore. Then you know what you need to do? You need to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to obey God, trust him, love him enough to become his child in the waters of Christian baptism so that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because that's what God said. And if you're here this morning, you've never heard that or it sounds foreign to you, we'd love to study it with you. This is not our opinion. This is not our idea. This is what the Bible says. We can prove it black and white, book, chapter, and verse. It's what the Bible says. And when you do that, when you want God to see you through, see you, and not be able to see your sin at all because it's covered by that blood that obliterates it. And that's what you need to do. And, and that'll give you that blessed assurance. And it'll also put in place that mechanism whereby for those who are Christians, even when they do sin, that the blood of Jesus, as they confess their sins, the blood of Jesus will continually cleanse them. And there's that blessed assurance in 1 John chapter 1 that we read about. And then there's the other view that God will take of sin. The other way he'll see it on Judgment Day, if you want God to see your sin face to face, no blood of Jesus filter to cover it or hide it or make it invisible. If you want him to see your sin face all, face on, in all of its full-blown ugliness and abhorrence to him, an ugliness and an abhorrence to him that will cause him to not let you enter the gates of heaven, then as we sing this song to invite you, just stay in the pew. But if you want that assurance, you want that cleansing, you want to be sure of it, you want that mechanism in place to ongoingly cleanse you of all your sins, then you need to repent and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of those sins right now as we stand and sing.